0: Today we are beginning a new series on the book of Joshua. And there's a great amount here for the practical instruction and for the encouragement of the people of God. As the book opens, we find Israel at this momentous turning point in our history. They are transitioning from Moses, they had enjoyed Moses' unparalleled leadership for 40 years, and they're transitioning to leadership under Moses' aide, Joshua. And so it's a time of transition, and such times of transition, whether for a church or for a nation or for any institution, can be difficult and dangerous. Transitions are fraught with peril. But they're also full of exciting prospects. Right? Because they raise the question, how do we, how does Israel, preserve and build upon one's heritage while at the same time moving out into the future to which God calls His people? And so there's, there's no institution, there's no person for that matter that can remain um, spiritually healthy by simply maintaining what has always been the case or what has always been. God doesn't let us do that because He's the Lord of the future and He continues to call us out into His mission, His passionate mission to the world. And so here's Israel. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after the whole generation of the Exodus has died, except for the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua, after numerous battles, after myriad failures, they're finally poised on the east side of the Jordan River. And Joshua is told, as the text opens, that Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. The the book opens with an obituary, a brief one. And until the end of the book, when this title, the servant of the Lord, is given to Joshua himself, Moses is the only one called the servant of the Lord. Now think of what it must be like to have been Moses' successor. Now this Moses had confronted Pharaoh with miraculous signs, and by his hands parted the Red Sea. He alone spoke to God face to face. He receives the law on Sinai amid fire and smoke. He leads Israel through the desert. Scripture tells us there was no one like him before or since in Israel. And so his loss, his loss would be terrifying it would be an enormous loss for the people of God but he had prepared them for it he had prepared them for it by training and commissioning Joshua his aid to succeed him in fact back in numbers Moses renames Joshua his given name was Hoshea which means salvation or he saves Moses renames him Joshua, which means the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. And the point of this renaming is clear, and it shall become clearer as the book proceeds. But it's simply this, that the fidelity of God, that his saving power does not depend on any man, no matter how gifted, no matter how great, and it does not evaporate in the face of funerals, Men die and the living God is the Savior of His people and shall continue to be so. So with that, we'll make five points here in this opening charge to Joshua. And the five points are the land, the presence, the presence, and uh, the courage The law and the greater Joshua. So I'll repeat those the land, the presence, the courage, the law and the greater Joshua. So, first the land. In verse 2, the Lord tells Joshua, Now then, you and all these people, get ready. Get ready. Prepare yourselves to cross the Jordan into the land that I'm about to give them. The land is of supreme importance in this book. And we'll have a lot to say about it, Lord willing, as we go on. In fact, the whole book can be simply divided into three parts. Entering the land, dividing the land, No, it's entering, conquering, dividing. Entering the land, conquering the land, dividing the land. That's the book of Joshua. That's the outline. Enter, conquer, divide. I think we moderns have a certain way of abstracting the faith from the concrete realities of things like the land because we're not in the same position as Israel. But we can learn a lot about the concrete, embodied reality of the faith by remembering that the covenant has to do with a land grant. And the promise of this land goes all the way back to the call of Abram in Genesis 12. And it's reiterated many times across the centuries. It's the land, verse 6 says, that God swore to give to Israel's ancestors. It was the land promised, verse 3 says, to Moses. So life in communion with God is life in communion with God in this land. Eating the produce of this land. Cultivating this land. That is Israel's destiny. And possessing this land and securing it, that's Joshua's high calling. So I want to note a couple things about the land First, the land is a gift. This can be easily lost sight of because there's a lot of battles in the book of Joshua. But the land is a gift. It's a divine inheritance. Three times in this passage, God says He is giving or He will give. And in many cases in Joshua, it's I've already given the land. And so the Lord in this book, as in many places in the Old Testament, is depicted as a warrior God who's going to conquer the land through Joshua, his chosen agent. Yet, as in the Christian life, what is given must be taken. What is given must be taken. The gift must be appropriated. This is why Joshua was told that the people must get ready. They must prepare. They must be spiritually ready to cross and to possess the land. For God is going to give them every place where they set their foot, verse, as verse 3 puts it. It's interesting to note here that the word for you, Y-O-U, in verses 3 and 4 is plural. Plural it refers to Joshua and all the people. Later, it becomes singular and refers only to Joshua. But in 3 and 4, it's Joshua and all the people. And so, there's no possession of our destiny, of the gift of our inheritance, without spiritual preparation and discipline. Without living out the promises, without aggressively laying hold of them. The Christian life is unique in this sense. It's all gift, and it's the, the nature of the gift requires the full extent and powers of human labor. Second, note here in the text that the, the rough, sort of broad outlines, the boundaries of the land are given in verse 4. Right? This is not a mythological land, it's a real land. Israel lives in a chunk, a slice of it today. A much smaller slice than outlined here. From the desert in the south to Lebanon in the north. From the Euphrates, which probably refers approximately to the the northeastern boundary. To the great sea, which is the Mediterranean on the western side of the land. And there's a mention of the Hittite country. And that mention tells Joshua what he already knows. It tells him there's going to be great opposition to be faced in taking this land. So that's the land. The second thing is the presence. From verse 5 on, the word you is now singular. And here then, God is charging, He's encouraging Joshua alone. No one will be able to stand against Him all the days of his life. And the reason for this is, as I was with Moses so I will be with you. There's the principle of institutional continuity in Israel. Yes, humanly speaking, it moves from from Moses to Joshua. But the Lord God himself is the continuity, the preserving principle of Israel and the church in the world. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. When Moses, you might remember, he was called at the burning bush to confront Pharaoh. He resists the call and the Lord responds with, But I will be with you. This is the very heart of the promise of the covenant. I will be their God. And so this presence of the Lord is the secret to Moses' success And it shall be for Joshua as well. Without it, without it, nothing is possible. But with it, the promised land shall be possessed. And so the presence of the Lord is the promise of victory. God's presence, if you will, comes to enable conquest. This is why it's so important That we continually in the new covenant be filled with the Spirit. Because the presence of the Lord is our light and our salvation. And so the end of verse 5, the Lord tells his servant Joshua, still green as a leader, I will never leave you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Of course, that's an echo of what Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, isn't it? Now, what does this mean? I think it's important to see that these kinds of promises, I will never leave you or forsake you, I will be with you, they mean that this presence does not need to be conjured. There's no divination needed to secure this presence. It's promised. It's a base fact of reality. And it's promised to be perpetual. God will never forsake his covenant or his promises. And this means that Joshua and with him Israel shall inherit the land. Not because of military might or power or because Joshua is a great strategist, though he clearly has gifts as a general, but it will be by the ever present and promised spirit of God who is a warrior. So the third point here is courage. Three times in the passage, God tells Joshua three times to be strong and courageous. In verse 7, it's be strong and very courageous. And this means certainly that Joshua desperately needed to hear these words. When God tells you something three times in the space of a couple verses, it means you need to hear it. Joshua's unproven Largely unproven and largely untested. Moses is dead. He cannot be consulted. And the people, well, they're fickle. They have a history of treachery. And the land is full of imposing enemies. It's important to remember this. Canaanite civilization was at this point far advanced in comparison to Israel. By any measure, including militarily. Israel, after all, is a a wandering band of nomads in the wilderness. It was just this reality that led the ten spies to say, there's no way we can take this land. And Joshua showed a different spirit then, but now, this is game time. Moses is dead. And so the whole campaign is going to rest, humanly speaking, on his shoulders. And so he receives this charge three times. Be strong and courageous. I think courage is a greatly underappreciated and underlooked virtue when people talk about the virtues of the Christian life. To move forward, to move into new realms in times of transition requires courage. And courage is not the absence of natural fear. It's not the absence of apprehensions. Joshua surely had these. He had plenty of them. In fact, in verse 9, the Lord adds, do not be frightened or dismayed. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is doing what is right calmly, what we've been summoned to, in spite of our fears. Aristotle used to talk about these virtues and talk about the mean, and there would be an error on one side of the mean and another error on the other side of the mean. And when it comes to courage, you know, you might think, well, how can you have too much courage? Well, there are two mistakes, Aristotle says, when it comes to courage. One is in the face of real danger, a person shrinks back in fear. Think of a battle. A warfare situation where the person has to curl up is terrified. But the other extreme is a person sort of summons up enough will to run recklessly headlong and is killed. That's not courage either. There are people who say, I'm not afraid of anything, and they just dive right in. That's, that should not be mistaken for courage. Courage is calm, grace under pressure. It avoids both of those extremes. I I heard recently a story about Winston Churchill in in the Boer War in, in the late 19th century where he was on an armaments train in South Africa and the train got stuck on the tracks and it came under fire and no one knew what to do and Churchill finally decided, I think I can get the stuff off the tracks. He went outside the train to the amazement of everyone on the train and basically took fire for 20 minutes, got the track cleared and got back on the train. He, the train was later captured and Churchill later escaped, became a war hero. Uh, he was not yet 25 years old when he did this. But that's courage. It's neither reckless nor feckless. And so this kind of courage, which is required in the Christian life, it's required of us, it rests on the simple promise, I will Be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So, the fourth thing is the law. The law, then. This is where the rubber meets the road in this passage, I think. Uh, Joshua, he's received the promise of God's presence, he's received a charge to be strong and courageous but how is this to be worked out practically? I mean, it's one thing to be told, be strong and be courageous, but how is he daily going to lay hold of the promise and renew his courage? It turns out that the answer is by giving undivided attention to the law of God. God does not give Joshua a military combat manual. Or some strategic guidelines. He gives him the Torah. In Deuteronomy, uh, the kings of Israel were to read and meditate on the law and not to rely on excessive military might. And Joshua, though he's not a king, is given basically the same instructions. And so what he needs and what we need Are the spiritual fortifications, the armaments of the Word of God. Not mystical experiences, not warm feelings, not the latest gimmicks, but Holy Scripture. Plain and simple. It's in that Word that Joshua and the church finds, encounters the promised presence of the Lord. So it's there that His and our hearts will be strengthened encouraged, have courage placed into them in the face of our fears. The Spirit, the promised presence, works in and with the Word. The Spirit places courage into you through the Word. And so, if you will, the promises, the charge to Joshua converges on Scripture. It's impossible, I think, impossible, to overstate the role of the law for Joshua, and for the people. Just as it is to overstate the centrality of Holy Scripture for the Christian and for the Christian church. This is to be the commanding, towering, dominating center of his life. Notice, notice in the text, he is to obey all the law. Verse 7, Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. And he is to heed only the law. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left. The whole law and nothing but the law. The law is to have no competitors. And he's to be immersed in the law always. Verse 8. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it. Day and night, just like the man in Psalm 1 is charged to do. The whole law, nothing but the law, always and at all times the law. And this engagement with the Word of God written will, and we see this at the end of verse 7, make him successful wherever he goes. So we can add everywhere to the law. So if you're looking at that line in the outline, it's all the law, only the law, always the law, everywhere the law. That's the charge to Joshua with respect to Holy Scripture. All the law, only the law, always the law, everywhere the law. I'm fond of citing, and I I know I've cited it three or four times already, I want to cite it again, the great 4th century biblical scholar, Jerome, who said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. The point of Jerome's saying there is that one's engagement with Holy Scripture is the barometer of one's spiritual health. We're often... uh, especially in the Reformed tradition, but in other traditions as well, encouraged, and I encourage it and practice it largely, to try and read widely. Reading widely is good, right? It rounds you out, balances you out, helps you have a broader perspective. The, the Reformed have always wanted their ministers to read widely. But I've always thought that in light of a passage like this one, somebody needs to write an essay entitled, Read Narrowly. Right, read with a, with a central, maniacal focus on this book and this text. Because this text is not going to share center stage with the rest of your reading agenda. Read narrowly. Now, of course, this does not mean that Joshua, Joshua does nothing but study the law, although at, at first blush it might sound like that. But he's going to be plenty busy throughout the book, as we all are busy, and he's going to be busy with divinely given work. But surely the text must mean at least that he'll spend substantial, sustained time with the Word of God. It does mean that this book will be the book of his life. I mean, that sounds almost obvious, too obvious to state that the Bible should be the book of the Christian's life. But sometimes we don't quite get the obvious things right. Human nature being what it, what it is. This is the central book. This is the deepest well. He Put it this way. We are to know a lot more about this book than any other book or any other author. This is going to be his chief delight. This is the heart of God's charge to Joshua. And this means this text, the text of Scripture, is the decisive, formative influence for our thoughts and our words and our actions. And for Joshua, this meant that there'd be no task, no battle, no strategic decision, no administrative act. Nothing will be done but in the light of and in obedience to this word. Of course, this requires a lot of wisdom, a lot of prudential judgment. It's not like Scripture is, is a detailed prescription of everything you're to do every day in every situation. But it does form and shape and create the instincts we need to make those prudential, wise decisions in situation to situation. Joshua will not be able to bypass this. He won't be able to say, well, I'll get into the situation and I'll pray for the Lord's help. I'll get into the situation, and I'll ask the Spirit to show me what to do. Because eight, the structure of the text makes it clear that the promised presence and the Spirit's help is joined to this day and night, all, always, only, everywhere, engagement with the Word. So again, it's impossible to overstate this for Israel, and for us. It's in this manner that God's presence and the courage we need is mediated to us. This is going to make, as verses 7 and 8 say, Joshua prosperous, successful. Of course, this has nothing to do with financial success. This is success in the strategic purposes of God in obtaining the inheritance of the land against all enemies. So this is God's charge to Joshua. Now, in many ways, of course, it's unique to him, but I hope it's become clear that it's a very practical text that applies to you and I, to the church, and especially to a church which seeks to move forward after a transition. One last thing. We cannot draw a line directly from Joshua or from any Old Testament passage, for that matter, directly from that to our own experience. This is often done, of course, but it's not appropriate because the whole Old Testament, the whole law of God, testifies and points forward to Jesus. The book of Joshua does not point forward to you or to me. Into our lives. It points forward to Jesus. And so we have to resist the temptation to take passages in Joshua and draw them straight to us, bypassing the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings me to the last point the greater Joshua. Uh, Joshua, who, whose name in Greek is identical to Jesus' name, uh, he's a, a type, meaning he's a picture, he's a foreshadowing of Christ. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Because Jesus is the one who is the Lord, our salvation, the Lord who saves. And so when we see Joshua operating in this book with much fame and great success, we must remember that great as he was, like all men, he stands under judgment for breaking the law he was charged to keep. Joshua's in need of atonement set out in the sacrificial system which he's going to establish or which will be established under his leadership in the land. Joshua' a good man, there's no doubt about that, in many ways a great man. but his obedience is a dim reflection of the all only, always, everywhere, obedience to the Father and His law, which has come in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus' obedience, obedience unto death, but obedience throughout the whole of His life is so critical for us. Adam was charged to perpetually and personally obey. Joshua was charged, but no one does it except the Lord Jesus Christ. We've called this His active obedience. This is what we call Jesus' active obedience. And we should think of it and praise God for it when we look at a text like this. All, always, only, and everywhere obey the law. And realize that Joshua and Israel, you know their destiny, right? They're vomited out of the land. That's their destiny. They don't do well at this. Jay Gresham Machen, who was a, founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and uh, one of the early fathers of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, died as a relatively young man, somewhere in the Dakotas, I believe it was, and he wires back a very well-known telegraph right right on his deathbed that says, I am so, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And so, it's Jesus' obedience that Joshua's charge points to. And the land which Israel was to possess, but which they failed to maintain and were expelled from, that land is a picture of our inheritance. It points to the new heavens and the new earth which the meek in Christ are to inherit. Right? So you can't draw a direct line from the land to your house or your garden. Or your property. The land goes to Jesus and to the new heavens and the new earth. And the rest, which Joshua brought Israel to in the land, was also partial and incomplete. And the book of Hebrews tells us that the greater Joshua will lead us to the eternal Sabbath rest in the kingdom of God. And so, We will have occasion to say this again. I know I've said it in Sunday school a half a dozen times, but I want to say say it again now because I think it's very important to get the big sweep. God has, from the beginning, been seeking a holy people in a holy land under a holy sun, enjoying a holy rest. That is, I think, a fair case can be made that that's the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. From Adam to Israel to Christ. God has, from the beginning, been seeking a holy people in a holy land, under a holy sun, enjoying a holy rest. So again, we must move from this text to see Jesus, the greater Joshua. Because in Him, our disobedience and our law-breaking is covered. His obedience is charged to us. It's charged to us as if we were absolutely, always, only, and everywhere obedient to the law of God. That's what the righteousness of Jesus means to you. And it's in the risen Jesus, the risen greater Joshua, that the gift of the Spirit comes and that is the fullness of the promised presence, I will be with you. And having the Spirit, what do we have? Paul tells us. We have the first fruits of our inheritance. Right? That promise, I will be with you, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's spoken by the greater Joshua to the whole church as the church goes forth to conquer in obedience to the Great Commission. And so now in Christ we conquer, but not by military power but in mighty spiritual warfare by word and deed, seeking the coming homeland, our Sabbath rest. We will come back to these things in various shapes and forms throughout this book, Lord willing. So, Joshua's been charged. And the text means that amid all of our changes, all of our transitions in life, including funerals. All of life's arrivals and departures, the Lord's presence and power and purpose remain triumphant. Unthwarted, unthwartable. Men die. Empires lapse, ages crumble. But the Lord lives. So cling to the one who's greater than Joshua. Cling to the whole counsel of God and Holy Scripture. For it's in that word that the presence of God is going to meet you. And in the calling of God, you, we, Westminster Presbyterian Church, we shall prosper and succeed. Be strong. Be very courageous. We have rivers to cross land to possess, and an inheritance to gain. Amen.